Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Joe DiMaggio is one of the most iconic baseball players of his day, of his time, maybe of all time. Uh, We've got a couple pictures, you may recognize him, but Joe DiMaggio's life was always kind of put forth as like this idealistic kind of thing. He always had the shiny exterior, right? Not only the fame from baseball, but money and power and popularity. He was the guy who had it all together, right? So much so that he ended up marrying none other than Mary. Marilyn Monroe. And so the story of their relationship kind of builds up just this mythos of who Joe DiMaggio was as an individual, right? He's the guy that from the outside you're looking in and going, he's got it all together. He's got it all figured out. He's got the whole picture. Shortly after his death, there was a biography that was published about him by somebody who'd been following him for quite some time, and he'd collected stories about how the the reality of Joe DiMaggio's life was separate from who he really was. The author would describe it like this, that, that Joe took such care to present a manicured appearance to anyone and everyone in the world that anytime somebody bumped up against this shiny, perfect reality, that he wanted to display. They would be met with anger and hostility. He would cut them out of his life. Joe was all about, was all about projecting this image of perfection, that he had it all figured out. And anytime something came against that, he would shut it down as fast as humanly possible. The author goes on to make a, a sad statement that he fears that while we all knew the image of Joe DiMaggio, no one actually knew the man Joe DiMaggio because he buried it so deeply within himself that even those people closest to him had no idea who he really was beneath the surface. All he did was present this manicured front about who he was and what other people thought of him. Right? As people, we, we do this, right? We spend a lot of time polishing the exterior. We want to be known for what we can accomplish, for how dependable we are. We want our people at work to know that we can get the job done. We want our neighbors to know how easy it is for us to live our life. We want our kids' parents to know how easy it is for us, how, how teachers, we want them to know that everything's fine at home and surely it's just a mistake. It's not because we think other people are wrong. It's just because when we're criticized, something tends to well up with inside of us, some type of self-preservance, some sort of we got to keep the status quo rises up from the inside. We need people to think about us in a certain way, and too often we extend huge amounts of energy over keeping that image in front of everyone else's in the forefront of everyone else's mind. It, maybe we can say it this way, though. When we, when we build up that fake version of ourselves, that false version of who we really are, and we create that separation like we looked at with Joe DiMaggio, what, what actually happens is that we build up this false version of ourselves, and we end up living the life of a fake person, of somebody who doesn't actually exist because we're so busy trying to build up this exterior that we don't have time to be 
true with our authentic selves. We want to be known by our peers as the person who gets the job done. We want to be known as the person that can be counted on or the person who can break the tension with a funny joke. And so we spend our time creating and cultivating this positive self-awareness for the outside. But really, if we were to step back, we would say that we're creating two different versions of ourself. There's the, the public version, and then there's who we are when no one is around. There's who we are at work or when we're around friends or around church people, heaven forbid. And then there's who we are when no one else is around. And just like a a phony social media profile, it may look like you, it may have the same photos as you, it may say the same things as you, but it is not fundamentally you. If you do this in enough areas of your life, we find ourselves similar to Joe DiMaggio, living an entire life that's built on what we put out into the world, built on this shiny exterior, while inside nobody knows the true us, who we really are. We're in in week three of our series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We're spending eight weeks kind of digging into some of these issues, who we are on the inside. Two weeks ago, right, we talked about this idea of the iceberg and that 10% of it is visible, and those are our actions, our behaviors, the things that we do, but there's this 90% below the surface that's made up of who we are and the complex thinkings of what we bring to the table. We're going to build on that idea today about how how do we break through the surface level and get down to those things that are really, truly at our core. Last week, we talked about loving well, and we said that the example that Jesus gives us is that incarnation, stepping into other people's worlds, is the way that we truly begin to love others and how we become the type of person that we want to be. Next week, we're going to talk about breaking the power of the past. That's going to be a great message. We're going to also talk about limits, letting go of power and control, and maybe even learning how to stop. So I hope you'll come back or at least tune in for the messages that you're not able to hear. But today we're going to start at the beginning because the the bedrock to any type of personal growth, whether it be emotional or spiritual, physical, really anything that we have in areas where we want to grow, personal growth starts with a level of personal awareness. Personal growth, being able to grow in any area, to change in any area, to proceed forward in any way that we want to, starts with some level of being aware of the problem, being aware of what's going on inside of us that kind of pushes itself out to that upper 10%, right? So the most important step that you can take on this journey that we can take together is to look inside of ourselves to recognize that the actions that we take come from somewhere, that they aren't just floating out in space, but who we are as people is deeply connected with other parts of ourselves. Let me tell you just a little bit about what I mean. There's a, there's a statement that said that you can only lead people as far as you have gone yourself, and nowhere is this more true than in our own souls, right? So, for instance, you're driving in traffic. Somebody cuts you off, you honk at them, you tell them they're number one, right? The whole story goes on, and you continue your your commute to work. Arriving at work, you see that, of course, nobody has bothered to start coffee, let alone do the dishes from yesterday. So you begrudgingly set about the task of making coffee, cleaning out dishes, muttering under your breath the whole time. You show up to your first meeting where the very first agenda item, you recognize that a deadline has been missed, that this is going to cause traffic jams all over your workday, and now the rest of your day is set. At some point during the day, somebody walks into your 
your office and they politely say something to you about a change or correction or noticing your behavior and you lose it. Not because of their individual comment, right? If we step back and ask why, we would recognize that the situation that you blew up at, that you lost your cool at, isn't isolated, but it's built and predicated on the emotions that led up to that day. As people, we're complex, and that's just one small eight-hour window, perhaps, of your life. But if you extrapolate that over a lifetime, we see that things are deeply connected. This surface-level behavior is always connected to something deeper. Or perhaps you wake up late only to find out that your oldest has a school project that's due today. The middle child doesn't want hot lunch and needs you to make lunch for them. And your youngest is crying because that's what the youngest always does. Your spouse kisses you on the cheek as they head out the door. And you're pretty sure you hear them say, good luck, right? You navigate the morning routine just in time to hit Starbucks where there is a line. And it delays your entire day. You wind up getting stuck, not being able to complete tasks. You barely grab lunch before you make it home to get the kids from school and start on the afternoon routine of homework, snacks, and dinner, during which chaos always reigns. At some point, your loving spouse comes home after a difficult day on their own, no doubt, plops down on the couch and says, where's dinner? Which prompts the usual argument that it always prompts throughout the course of the day. You have the same fight that you always have, and the simple question to draw our attention to today is, but why? Is it just because of their unawareness of your own situation, or is it because things build up over time that our surface-level behaviors are connected to something much deeper and much more real than simply the stimuli on the surface? There's always something going on beneath the surface, whether in our daily lives or all the way back from childhood memories and growing up, things that we've learned and internalized about who we are, about the way that the world works, and behaviors that we take to make us feel safe and secure and loved, and we build our lives around these principles. Sometimes we can get disconnected from the actions and behaviors that we take from the why that motivates us to act in those ways. Often these are unspoken or undefined. Sometimes they're unrealized, but they form our will and our values. They form the things that make us fall in love and that drive us crazy. And getting to the core of ourselves, the root of our actions, is the most fundamental step of personal growth because personal growth starts with personal awareness. So since we're in church, let's follow our typical line of thought. If we're going to get ourselves to the place where we can experience who God created us to be, then hopefully we have a model or somebody to follow after. Thankfully, we do in Jesus. So we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, it's on page 456. Easy enough to find, page 456. If you'd like to use one of the Worship Center Bibles, you can slip your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you one. You can borrow it for today. Keep it if you don't own one. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. But we're going to see how Jesus handles a little bit of the things that try to separate his exterior actions from who he knows he is at his core. This is going to come up in the vein, in the avenue of temptation. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 is where Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan, and we're going to see his responses, how he internalizes these things through a couple different lenses. Jesus is 10% his behavior. Satan's going to try to get him to compromise based on the 90% of who he is. Let's jump in at verse number one. Then Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And all God's people said, duh, right? (laughs) The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. This is a very rationalistic argument, right? You've been fasting for 40 days. Satan says, you're the son of God. Just give yourself a little snack. Nobody's going to fault you for that. There's nothing wrong with that. This is what it is to be human, Jesus. Welcome to the experience, right? Henry Nouwen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, walks through these temptations. So does Pete Scazzario in the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is where we're taking this series from. So I'm going to give you both of their terms for this as we walk through this. So Henry Nouwen in his book describes this temptation as the temptation for Jesus to be relevant, to be relevant, to be practical, to do what needs to be done, to be, to ally himself with his humanity. Pete Scazzario calls it the temptation to performance, to put up that fun face, to put up that exterior. The lie that's part of this whole temptation is that we are somehow connected and defined by what we do that I am what I produce, that I am what I achieve. This lie is very familiar, especially if you work in America today. We're often only as good as our last sale, our last best day. The accomplishments that we've brought in have shelves, and they litter our resumes with the areas that we do what we're expected to do. In pursuit of this achievement, we often hide our failures and shortcomings. We put a mask over it. We call them learning opportunities or growth phases, but the message that we typically hear when we aren't achieving or doing what we ought to be doing is that no matter what, don't fail again. Don't let them see you sweat. Don't come up short. You are what you do after all, and what you achieve is a direct correlation to your value as a person and to this company, right? So make bread. Do something. To not do something is bad, it's weak. Play the game. If you perform, you'll get the raise, you'll get the promotion. The next step, you'll be on your way up and up. Who you are is inextricably linked with what you can do and produce. This isn't just corporate America, by the way. This is moms with other moms comparing stories. This is dads with other dads being proud about our achievements and our children. This is parents with our children as we get around and begin the comparison game with other parents. It's bragging on spouses at parties when we're around someone that we want to express, to impress, excuse me. We instinctively get the sense that our value is tied, that who we are is dependent on what we do, what we produce, what we make into the world, the bread, as it were, that we produce. So what's Jesus's answer to the legitimate request, the temptation to be relevant, to be part of the world, to perform and to achieve? You've got to make money after all. You've got to eat. You've got to make bread. Jesus's answer is in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, it's not what we do that sustains us. The bread that we make is not the source of life. God's word about us is what makes life worth living. If we could pull back a little bit to our analogy about what we're diving into, the reality is that authenticity is always the opposite of this false self. Being true, bringing our whole self into the picture is always the opposite of constructing this false narrative about who we are. And in Christ, we're called to bring our whole selves, our authentic selves to the surface, to be an integrated human being, having a human experience, and to push back on anything that would cause 
cause us to be false. So when Jesus is asked to make bread, to perform, to achieve, Jesus says, no, my value doesn't come from those things that I do. The doing itself isn't wrong, but I refuse to be identified by the things that I do, by the things that I achieve. The truth to dismantle this lie is that I am only who God says that I am, that at the end of the day, bread is not what we live on. Our performance, our achievement is not what we live on, but we live by everything that God says is true about us. The lie is that we are what we do. The truth is that we are who God says that we are. So in your own journey toward authenticity, where does the temptation to be relevant, to perform, to achieve, rear its ugly head? Where do your actions, what actions do you take out of a desire to prove yourself? And where could you take a step back to realize that your worth doesn't come from those places, but from something so much deeper, from what God says about you? One step further, we'll get to later. Where do you find the time to discover those places where God has spoken truth about you so that you can dismantle the lie of, produ- of production and performance and you can insert what God has to say about you. That's the first temptation, performance, or to be relevant. Jesus is tempted again, verse 5. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city, presumably Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, right? This time he uses scripture, right? No one knows scripture better than our accusers, which is an interesting point. Nonetheless, Nowen would call this the temptation to be spectacular. Scazzario would say that this is the temptation of popularity. The, the lie that we want to dismantle here is that I am what others think that I am. That something about my, my value and my worth comes from what other people think about me, what other people say about me. In other words, the reason why we have to polish this shiny exterior, the reason why we have to do the spectacular things is because we want people to think that that is who we really are. The temptation for Jesus is to use what Scripture says is true to prove that he is who he says he is. Satan is goading him, right? It's put up or shut up time. If you you're the Son of God. Scripture says this is true, so why don't you just prove it, Jesus, and shut me up? Once you prove this, once you prove that you're the Son of God, then I have nothing to stand on. So, Jesus, why don't you just do what you say is true about you? Which prompts a question. How do we know which of us is the real us? Is it who we believe we are inside? Is it a product of what other people believe about us on the outside? How do you know which you is the real you? If you know that you are somebody who is a deeply caring person, that you carry weight and burdens down into your soul when you care about the people around you, and someone accuses you of being inconsiderate, how do you respond? If you're a normal human being, right, we tend to rally behind that. We tend to rise up and to say, no, here's why I know I'm not inconsiderate, because I consider people's needs above myself. I'm always serving them. I'm always trying to love them. We we try to rally to buffer up that sense of self that other people believe about us. It's as if 
What they say about us matters more than who we truly are. It's as if we have to prove our point to them when an accusation comes against us. It's as if we aren't truly who we say that we are unless we can prove it externally. Translation, what you think of me is very, very important to who I think I am. What you think of me, your opinion of me, is very, very important. Therefore, I have to build up this case for you to believe that your opinion about me matches up with my opinion about me. The problem, therefore, of course, you see, is that we then begin to build up this false self. When your opinion of me matters to any degree at all to define who I actually am, I now have a lot of work to do to convince you that who I am inside is who you see on the outside, and we begin building this wall, this false perimeter, this shiny mask that we can wear so that you have a good opinion of me because your opinion of me influences my opinion of me. In other words, I don't know what's going on beneath the ice because I have something to prove to you. Jesus displays the opposite, that I don't have to prove myself to anyone. I know who I am. That is rock solid, and your opinion is just your opinion. In other words, what's beneath the ice, I know what's down there, and I don't have to prove anything to you because the truth is that I know who I am, and the reality of who I am is not influenced by your opinion, positively or negatively. Verse 7, Jesus says as much. He said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says, I don't have to prove anything to you. I don't have to prove that I'm the Son of God. I know who I am down in my core, and your opinion of that has no relevance on who I actually am. The truth is that that is who I am on the inside, and this can affect us both positively and negatively. If other people think that you're a great person and they keep lauding accolades on you, but deep down you know that you have some stuff to work with, you begin to polish that shiny exterior to live up to their expectations, right? So the next time that you feel the urge to defend yourself to someone else, to raise up against a false accusation or to fight for your image maintenance, here's my challenge to you. Don't. Just don't. What if you didn't? What if you just let that be their opinion? Who I am will not be influenced or baited by you because I'm fighting for authenticity, which comes from beneath the surface. And as I fight to remove the false pieces of myself, I don't have to defend myself to you at all. I simply can be who I am, a person in progress. Your opinion is just your opinion. The temptation from Jesus is, is dismantled by the truth that we simply are who we are regardless of anyone else's opinion or what other people think that we are. Third and final temptation is the temptation to be powerful. According to Nowen, Scazzario would say that it's the temptation of possessions. The lie here is that I'm defined, that I am what I have by the amount that I build up, that somehow my value is tied to the things that I own or possess. Jumping in verse 8, Matthew chapter 4 again. The devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Verse 9, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. 
Satan tempts Jesus with the fast route. To worship him and all of the kingdoms will be yours. You can have it all, power and possessions. The only catch is that you have to violate your authentic self. But don't worry, Jesus. It's just a mask. It's just for a moment. You can still be your true you. Only let it lapse for this one time. Notice that temptation is always against authenticity. The temptation is to take a shortcut to bypass the authentic decisions that bring our true self to the surface. It's a false attempt to meet a deep reality. And Jesus demonstrates that, be, that to be authentic and true means saying no to the fast, easy ways and to allowing our actions to be influenced by the deepest part of ourselves. Because we all want success to some level. If we could have an honest conversation and I could write you a check for enough money to last you for the rest of your life and you could retire today and do whatever you wanted, most of us would say that's, that's the goal, that's the dream, right? This is why we work so hard is so that someday maybe we won't have to work as hard. And so one day we can stop working. And the shortcut there is, well, hey, let's play the lottery, let's go to Vegas. If we just make a big enough score, then we can have all that we want and we can finally rest and finally be the person that we want to be, right? The problem is that shortcuts don't develop the authenticity to live that way. You've all seen the TV shows, right, about the lottery winners and how they go up big and then they wind up flailing out in the end. Why? Because shortcuts don't develop their authentic selves. They've, they've been separated by their surface actions and from the depth of their soul. They've cashed in, but they couldn't live according to the principles that their dream required. See, we all have the temptation to be powerful, to be in control, to possess, to rule and subdue, to have the house and the car and the full bank account, but the path there is not a short cut. If you're missing out on the development of your authentic self and your pursuit of significance, then you become someone searching for significance through your possessions instead of being someone significant who happens to own stuff. You become someone searching for significance through what you own instead of being someone significant who just happens to own stuff. Jesus' answer is in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Translation, no shortcuts. And if you worship possessions, then your possessions become your God and you become defined by what you owe. Don't believe me, let's talk personal finance here for just a second. What's the largest obstacle to you achieving your dreams? To be able to go on vacation, to cut loose, to not show up to work on, well, Monday's President's Day, to not show up to work on Tuesday, right? What are the things that keep you from doing that? There are financial ties, right? We have a, we have a mortgage, we have car payments, we have responsibilities, we have bills to pay, and so the reason why we can't do the things that we want to do is because we know that there's no shortcut in between there. We always build up the money that we want to do. If when we have enough money, we'll go on vacation. When we have enough money, we'll begin tithing and giving. When we have enough money, we'll begin doing those things. The problem is that that space always fills up. And the reason that we can't pack it all up tomorrow is because we have responsibilities today. Now, I'm not saying that our worth comes from those places, but what I am saying is that we have time, space, and opportunity to be defined by what we own or to own what defines us. 
And in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of who Jesus labels it out for us to be, he says possessions are not what it's about. It's about who owns us. And the lie to I am what I have is that we actually are who has us. We become what we worship, and too much of America, of our society, what we worship is material possessions. But the reality is that the reason that we come here and worship God is because we want to be defined in those spaces and by those things. We want to be defined by the God of the universe who gives us his grace and his loving compassion extended out to us. So those are the temptations that seek to build on our false self, to circumvent the hard work of liberating our authentic selves, temptations of relevancy, power, possessions, popularity. These are all the motivators. Again, they were motivators for Jesus. The motivation is not wrong, but our response to it defines who we are in the depths of our soul. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I just want to say two more things, two practical application steps to learning to resist these temptations and to finding a rhythm in your own life where you can get in touch with the authentic self, the the pieces that are beneath the surface, right? So in addition to resisting the temptations, you also must learn to pay attention to your own silence and solitude. You have to find a space to listen and dive into your soul. And I'm just going to level with you. Uh, This is impossible. It's flat out impossible. Do you know why? Because you have the world in the palm of your hands. We have the entire internet on our wrists. We are always connected. It's a, it's a pride point. We have social media and news on 24-7. When we get a down moment, it's never spent thoughtfully reflecting. It's always scrolling through Facebook, Instagram, the news, podcasts. Pick whatever, whatever vein you want to. But we are so inundated with information and connectivity that we have no space to carve out time for our soul. And chances are, I know many of you are good, good Christians, and so you do. You carve out time for quiet times and reading your Bible and for prayer. The problem is that those are all action-oriented. That's not downtime. That's not silence and reflectivity. That's not meditation or the opportunity to simply stop and cease. If you want to get in touch with your authentic self, you have to remove the distractions and pay attention to your own silence and solitude, right? When was the last time you had some free time? right? Parents, never, right? Like maybe before I had children. Here's the reality. When we don't have time to give our soul space to breathe, we have no other option but to protect the surface level 10% of behaviors because we have no opportunity to connect with the deepest parts of our souls. And when you do finally have free time, we're exhausted from caring for children and working full-time jobs that we want to just tune out and zone out with TV or with the internet. My personal favorite is video games. And so we, we just find ourselves spaced where I don't want to think anymore. I don't want to do any hard work. And we push this all to the edges. The problem is that you cannot develop or be in touch with your authentic self without carving out space for solitude, for stillness, for reflexive prayer, for meditation, where you go to God and you unpack your day, where you journal through things and just think about what those things mean. You never have the chance to answer the question, why? And that's the second real point that I would give you. Not only do you have to carve out time for solitude and silence, but you have to ask the question, why? 
As you go through your day, as you go through those experiences, why did I blow up at that coworker? Was it their actions or was it something within me? Why did I lose it with my kids? Did it have anything to do with their behavior or was it because I didn't carve out time for myself because I wasn't being honest with my spouse about where I needed them? Why did I lose it in this way or in that way? We have to give ourselves the time and the space to process through our reality. Otherwise, we just build up this shiny exterior and we keep patching it, we keep painting it, We keep making sure that nobody looks behind it. But the reality is that if you want to get in tune with your authentic self, you've got to carve out space for it, and you've got to invite Jesus into that and ask, why am I behaving in this way? This is so important that we actually have an entire message coming up for this. I hope that you'll be there. We're going to talk about stopping and resting and carving out time for this because there simply is no way for us to grow personally without taking time to apply these things to ourselves. So your challenge for this week is to carve out some space for yourself. This is not selfish in nature. Jesus did this often, but it's to carve out some time where you can just talk with God about you, about how life is going, about how the day went to ask why those things are happening and to get in tune with what's going on beneath the surface. This could be five minutes for you. It could be an hour for you. Chances are it's going to be difficult. There's going to be distractions and it is going to be nearly impossible which is all the more reason that we must covenant to do it. Your soul needs it. Your soul needs to be connected at all levels, and so often we just push it to the side. So I'm asking for the impossible this week, and that's my prayer for you, that you would find time to not do anything. Psalm 46.10 says it the best way, be still and know that I'm God. I want you to carve out space to be still. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I just want to lead you through a short process of discerning that. And so as the band comes, I just want to encourage you to bow your heads, to take a moment to sit quietly. I'm going to give you a couple seconds here. I'm going to give you just a couple seconds to tune in to what God might be saying to you, whether he used my words or he took you on a different adventure, that's fine, or whether right now you're just plugging in and going, okay, Holy Spirit, would you just speak whatever needs to be spoken. Silence and solitude are valuable in our world. I hope it's one of the reasons why you come, that you find just the tiniest moment and window to let go of the week, to let go of the day, to let go of the stressors, and to just be in God's presence. And as you come into that space, I want you to let Jesus lead you into a memory or to a thought, something that he wants to be healed with inside of you, something that is perhaps broken or someplace where you've been maintaining a false self and to just go, I want to talk about that. And to let him walk you through a healing process where you get to ask, God, why why do I behave that way? Why do I feel so alone? Why do I think this about that person? Why did their comment affect me so deeply? Why do I care about the possessions that I have, the car that I drive? Why are these things in place? And while I would love to give you another hour on top of this, I want this just to be the launching point for you. 
to recognize that God has more to give you than we give him space to operate in, that he wants to connect these deepest parts of ourselves with him, and he's begging us for time where we would sit quietly, where we would reflect, where we would trust him, where we would ask him to reveal the unrefined pieces of ourselves, that we would help him to connect why our behavior is what it is and how it matches up to something deep inside of us. Those are the opportunities that God has to heal us, to bring wholeness, to bring health to us, and those are the places that I want to encourage you to dive into. Because personal growth starts with personal awareness, and as you become aware of these areas, it takes time to unpack them. Heavenly Father, would you multiply the time and effectiveness of this space? God, that as we spend just a nanosecond of silence in front of you, worshiping you, God, that you would give us time, space, and opportunity to develop the habit of this time with you. God, as we go throughout this week, would you help us carve out moments of silence and solitude, opportunities for us to hear from you? And God, would you be honored by our worship of you in those spaces? We love you and we praise you. All God's kids said, amen.